You ever been in a situation where you've been temporarily stuck and you couldn't get out of it? Something that's a normal everyday thing, not something that lasts a long time, something that's temporary, just kind of, you know, stuck. Like maybe you've been stuck on a math problem uh, that you couldn't get uh, finished on your homework or something like that. Uh, For me, that stopped in about 12th grade when I said sayonara mathematics because I can't do calculus limits. So I remember uh, being on a math problem in 12th grade thinking, this is where my knowledge ends and I'm stuck. (laughs) Maybe you've been on the tarmac of a runway in an airplane for 45 minutes, no movement, no progress, nothing happening, no word from the cockpit, nothing going on, just sitting there waiting for something to happen. Maybe you've been stuck in a thunderstorm without an umbrella. Uh, I remember a few years ago, uh, I was stuck in a thunderstorm with an umbrella, and, and we were not anywhere close to the car. So it was fairly annoying to be drenched and totally wet. Maybe you've been stuck on a ditch in the side of the road. Maybe you've been stuck uh, like what happened to me the other day. And this was kind of a little annoying thing. I want to get off my chest. I was in line and, you know, you're in line behind somebody with a hundred things, like a hundred items in their buggy and 75 coupons. No offense, all of you who love coupons. Don't kill me. A hundred items in your buggy, 75 coupons, and you're in the express lane, like the one that says 10 items or less. Frustrating, stuck, sitting there for literally 20 minutes waiting for the person in front of me. And I thought to myself, I could have been gone if I'd gone to one of those other places next to me 10 minutes ago. Stuck, just temporarily stuck. It was also mildly annoying, by the way, for those of you who are grammarians, because it should say 10 items or fewer. But anyway. That's normal stuck. No big deal. Easy stuff. Wait for life to keep moving on and you're making progress. How about being stuck in the more serious, harder things of life? The kinds of things where you feel stuck. You feel stuck and you know two things about that feeling of being stuck. It's not going to end soon and it's not going to end easily. Have you ever been stuck in those kinds of places in life? Patterns of behavior in your life or things that go on. It may be a a figurative circumstance in your life, but something where you're stuck in a cycle of something, you're not making progress, you're not moving forward, you're on a plateau, you're on autopilot, nothing's happening, no progress, no movement. You're just, you're stuck and you, you feel it emotionally. You feel the weight of it. And you know two things. It's not going away soon and it's not going away easily. Maybe you've been stuck in the kinds of things we're talking about during this series. Stuck in a cycle of depression that we'll talk about today. Stuck in a a steady state of of fear that paralyzed you from uh, moving forward in your life or in your relationships. Maybe you've been stuck with an attitude of negativity, just always seeing something wrong. A cycle of negativity and an attitude of negativity in your life that kept you plateaued. Maybe you're on autopilot in your marriage and you've been stuck in a place where you're not making any progress. Maybe that's a pattern of behavior for you. Maybe you've been stuck in sexual sin and you don't see a whole lot of hope for it getting better for you. This is, this is something that's a big box because we're going to spend two weeks on it. 
These five things we're going to talk about for the next six weeks. These are the kinds of things that are stuck, that are harder to fix than you just willing yourself to better behavior. This isn't the kind of thing where you just wait for the wrecker to come to pull you out or you just wait for the person in line to move on so that you can make progress. This isn't that. This is the kind of thing where you're, you're not going to make forward progress by yourself. This is the weighty, hard stuff of life where you will not beat it by just, by just willing yourself to it. And, and if you've been stuck in any of those places, I mean really stuck, you know that I'm not just being dramatic. You know that I'm not just being dramatic, that it's not something you just will yourself out of because you've tried. You've tried time and time again to will yourself out of patterns of behavior that are keeping you plateaued, keeping you stagnant. Maybe in a relationship with others, maybe in your relationship with God, especially with your relationship with God. You know because you've tried time and time and time again and you're making no progress. You, you're not going to will yourself to success. This is the kind of stuff where you need fresh traction from the word of God and the spirit of God in you to change your heart and mind so that the lies that you believe will be, will be filled with the truth that God offers us in Jesus. That is the solution. That is the way to be unstuck in the things we're talking about here. Because here's something we all know intuitively about life. You may not necessarily name this all the time, but you know this about life. We all know this intuitively. Being stuck isn't the life that God intended for us. Being stuck isn't the life God intended for us, and we know it. We know, we know because of what Jesus was and what he is and what the Holy Spirit is for us. We know that with the weight of that and the value of that, that he didn't come and die on the cross for us just so we can be stuck and just stay stagnant and not make forward progress. We know that God intended more for us. Which is why Jesus came and why we're calling this verse here, this is one of our two theme verses here, God's mission. Uh, John 10.10, 10, you're going to know it by the time we're done with this uh, series. We're going to sort of quasi-memorize this along the way, these two theme verses. But I want to point out this first one to you, God's mission, John 10.10. 10. I want you to go ahead and read it with me real quick, and we'll talk about it here. Let's go ahead and read this. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You know that God gave Jesus to us for a life of abundance, not so that you can be stuck. And the thief, the evil one, comes only, only to steal and kill and destroy. This is Jesus talking to his first disciples, to his first followers, and to us now here today. And he contrasts that with himself saying, I came, this is Jesus speaking, that they, meaning us and them, may have life and have it abundantly. I came so that you can have victory over these kinds of things that, that keep you from progress in your walk with God, that keep you from becoming the productive, fruitful man or woman of God he created you to be. Well, sounds good, Jesus. I like that idea. <laughs> Count me in to that abundant life thing, not just existence life, but abundant life. How does that happen? Second one, 
Some of you can't see this. It's on the wall here. Uh, This is God's method for achieving abundant life. There are lots of places we could have chosen, but this is going to be key for us in this series. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. Go ahead and say it with me. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So how do we do it? We take every thought captive. We destroy strongholds. You may want to write this down because this is key for the whole series. We destroy strongholds with Christ-captive thinking. We destroy strongholds with Christ-captive thinking, with thinking that is imbued, filled with, made alive by the truth that comes from the heart of God alone that's expressed to us in His Word. Christ-captive thinking. So when you're thinking in your heart and in your head and in your mind about whatever it is you're, you're in, whatever circumstance you're in, you are captivated. You are captive, slave to Christ. So you're thinking comes from there. So why don't I live the abundant life? Why am I struggling? Why am I always stuck? Why am I not making forward progress? Because you are captive to some thinking that is not Christ-captive thinking. We need to learn to destroy those strongholds. What's a stronghold? It's any of these things. It's any of these things that keeps us from forward progress, progress in our growth and walk with God. So God wants to give us a life of fullness And we do that with Christ-captive thinking. We're going to talk about the life of Elijah in a little bit here. We're going to talk about depression first. We'll talk about the life of Elijah here soon. Uh, Elijah believed some lies. His thinking wasn't captive to a God-centered way of thinking about the world. And so he believed some lies, three lies we'll talk about, that we commonly think are the case for us that are part of this spiral of depression. And we'll talk about how Jesus undoes that. But first, let's talk about depression a little bit here. Just to make sure we're uh, all on the same page. Um, I want to go ahead and skip forward, guys, upstairs a little bit to defining depression so that we're all on the same page about what we're talking about here. This isn't scientific. This isn't DSM-5. I'm not going to be able to to talk about every circumstance in your life, and we're not going to solve clinical depression in one sermon here, but we, we do want to make sure we're on the same page here. So for us today, depression is this, a temporary emotional state characterized by exaggerated and extended feelings of hopelessness that are not consistent with reality. Depression is a temporary emotional state characterized by exaggerated, number one, and extended, number two, feelings of hopelessness that are not consistent with reality. So the feelings and the truth that is Christ-captive thinking aren't together in the same place. The feelings and the Christ-captive thinking are not consistent with one another. Now, statistically, in this room, at least 20 uh, plus percent of us have experienced clinical depression at one time in our lives. Now, I don't know if you've never heard a, a sermon about depression or uh, this is new to you, but, but it's something we need to talk about because it's something that is a common struggle for people. That's why the byline, the tagline for this is common struggles, fresh traction for common struggles. Look for some descriptions online about 
what it feels like to be uh, depressed. I found a few good ones here, and, and we'll give you some symptoms here in a bit here, but I just want to read some of these to you. These are some helpful descriptions that people have written about what it feels like to be depressed. Let me start with this one. Being depressed is one of the many side effects of being a teenager. Feel you're like, can I get a witness? Hashtag truth. Another one that was kind of funny is uh, the common uh, depression is the common rational reaction to self-awareness. I thought that was a little bit funny. These are not so funny. Depression is like when the world is one giant inside joke and you're not a part of it. Depression is something where at first it makes you feel human because of the intensity, the, the ferocity, the authenticity of the emotion. But then every other day becomes a reason to never want to wake up. This is probably the best one here. Depression is like everyone around you is breathing so easily. And you sit alone gasping for air. No one bothers to check if you need help because why would you? Why would you need help? There's air everywhere. Meanwhile, you keep on choking and gasping, watching everyone else breathe easily. Now, depression happens for a bunch of different reasons, a bunch of different circumstances. Uh, statistically, people who are uh, in their older years and in their younger years, teenagers and uh, millennials or 60s plus, are most prone to depression. And, and you, may, you may know where you are in the scale of this kind of thing, but, but I want to just describe the four D's of the dumps, we're going to call them. Uh, you can write these down as we go along, just so you can kind of measure where you are on this. Uh, some of you may have a, some experience with this. Some of you may not. You, you may go away from today thinking... I think I've been depressed for a long time. I didn't know it. That's not uncommon. First one is downcast. This is just an immediately circumstantial uh, kind of a feeling. It's something that is temporary, that, that is tied to the circumstances themselves. When the circumstances change, your feelings change. It's just kind of a mood. It may happen for a day. It may happen for a number of days, maybe even a week. You just say, I'm having a bad day. I'm downcast. The second one, and you'll see this gets a little progressively uh, more intense, discouragement. It's not just a bad day. It's a number of bad days that become a week, that become weeks. Discouragement is when, even though the circumstances change, your feelings don't. Your mood stays discouraged. Which means that a pattern of thinking begins to form. You begin to think certain ways. You begin to believe lies about yourself as a result of that prolonged discouragement if you're not careful. The third is depression. Depression is when it lingers and becomes not just a pattern of thinking for days and weeks, but actually months. Not just four, five, six weeks, but probably two months, three months, four months plus. Uh, depression can go for uh, many months, a year plus. Despair is the fourth one. Despair is when desperation makes people do desperate things. Despair is despair is when you 
hurt yourself or someone else. The people around you need to be a little bit worried about you because you're in this place that you cannot get out of. You don't know what's wrong. You can't shake it. It's hopelessness that is prolonged and in a way that, uh, that may be dangerous to yourself or others. We'll keep going here in just a second. But I want to tell you some things. I'm just going to read some things about number three, depression, since that's what we're focusing on here. These are just some symptoms. I'm just going to read them to you uh, so you can know what they are. Feelings of hopelessness or worthlessness or emptiness. Don't want to get out of bed for days or weeks at a time. Normal life that shouldn't be stressful is stressful. Difficulty concentrating or remembering details. Now, I know at this point, 75% of you are thinking, that's me every day, (laughs) which I get. (laughs) Uh, What we're talking about with these are a number of these for a prolonged period in a way you can't shake that goes for months on end, not just a couple here and there. Loss of interest in activities or hobbies that once were enjoyable. Too much or too little of eating or sleeping. That, That is every day. Persistent aches and pains and headaches, lack of motivation. Those are some of those symptoms that can easily, if you're not careful, morph into uh, despair. Friends, many estimate that at any given time in the United States population, 10% plus are in a clinical depression. Of those who are in clinical depression or have experienced clinical depression, one in ten will commit suicide. It is estimated that in five years, in 2020, depression will be the second leading cause of death in America behind heart disease. This, this is not a pretend thing. Now, if you've never been depressed, you may be sitting here thinking, why are we talking about depression? Like, I don't... I don't feel this. I don't have any problem with it. I promise you, promise you, people close to you do. I promise you. Because I I know that for every single thing we're going to talk about in this series, including today, for every single thing we're going to talk about, for every single person sitting in this room, two of three things apply. Number one, someone you know has experienced it, is experiencing it, will experience it. You yourself have experienced it, are experiencing it, will experience it. And number three, you're not as wonderful as you think you are. Two of those three, at least, are going to apply to all of us in this room. And listen, if you don't struggle with this, and you've got depression licked, you are blessed to be a blessing. There are people around you who need your encouragement and help and support. So this applies to everybody. And, and it's serious, and it can happen to anybody. <laughs> it can happen to anybody. There was a man who was a young Midwestern lawyer. This is many years ago. Uh, a promising practice, uh, doing well as a lawyer um, in the Midwest. And he got into this funk, this deep depression uh, that morphed into month after month after month of, uh, of the doldrums. He wrote this in his journal. We'll put this up for you. 
He said, I am now the most miserable man living. Whether I shall be better, I cannot tell. I predict I shall not. His friends thought it was so serious, they started to take away all the sharp objects, razors, knives out of his home. And, and when, when he felt like that, he said, I'm never getting better. <laughs> it can happen to anybody. This was a man who ran for political office and rose to become president of the United States at a critical time, perhaps the best president in my book he is. Abraham Lincoln was depressed. It can happen to anybody. It can happen to anybody. It happened to the man we're going to talk about here in 1 Kings 18 and 19. It happened to Elijah. Elijah is the second greatest prophet in the Old Testament after Moses. He was used in 16 miracles. He was a man of God who'd see God do amazing things. And we're going to look at a victory, a huge miracle that he's a part of when he defeats the prophets of Baal, that he's going to to walk away from and experience, of all things, a prolonged two-month-plus depression. It can happen to anybody. So let's go ahead and look at the life of Elijah. You're going to want to have uh, 1 Kings 18 handy here. We'll start at verse 22 here in a little bit. Let me just set the scene by saying a few things. Elijah had a hard job. He was a prophet. He had a hard job because he was a prophet in a time when King Ahab was in charge. Uh, it was a divided kingdom, which is bad news uh, most of the time for the people of God. And, and King Ahab had a wife. You may have heard her name, Jezebel. Not good. King Ahab and Jezebel were reigning at the time. And so Elijah was sent into this context to speak the truth of, truth of God in this culture that needed to hear this because they were uh, going with the pagan idols. They were worshiping idols. They were going along with King Ahab and, uh, and Jezebel. And so this was a low point in the history of the people of God. So Elijah had the fun job of confronting all this. Maybe that's why he was depressed. So we meet him at the beginning of 1 Kings 17. God had just sent a drought And this drought created a severe famine. And in the third year of the famine, God said, Okay, Elijah, I'm going to send rain soon. It's going to happen soon. But but I'm going to have to do something first where I demonstrate that I am the one true Almighty God and all of the prophets of Baal are not worshiping the one true God. So we'll get to that in a second. I need to tell you one more thing. Here's something interesting that will come into play later. God had sent Elijah to go to King Ahab to challenge him and the prophets of Baal. And on the way, he met a man named Obadiah. Obadiah was in charge of King Ahab's uh, home. He was uh, the keeper of the castle, so to speak. Uh, He was head of the household for King Ahab. Obadiah, 1 Kings 18.3 tells us, was a man of God. He feared the Lord. So he's a good guy. And so, uh, so... Elijah's on the way to King Ahab, and he meets Obadiah on the way. And Obadiah says something interesting that will come into play a little bit later that describes part of how Elijah responded and reacted in his depression. <laughs> Obadiah said, I know, you, I, I know you think you're like the last prophet left, but I took a hundred prophets of the Lord and I hid them in caves. You see, Jezebel was trying to wipe out all the prophets of God. And so when she started to do that, Obadiah took a hundred of the prophets of God, put them into two caves by fifties, fed them and made sure that they were alive so that God could use them later on. And Elijah says, 
functionally, he says, <laughs> okay, great, thanks. I'll move on now. That'll come into play a little bit later. Let's jump in at 1 Kings 18.22. Really great scene here. 1 Kings 18. 22, there were 450 prophets of Baal, one Elijah, and he says this to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. This was the beginning of the challenge. Notice what he says there, I, even I only. What did we just learn that Obadiah had told Elijah even before what we just read right here? There are others in the land. And Elijah says, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Here's how he sets down the challenge. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire on it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire on it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. They agreed to the terms of the challenge that Elijah set down. Keep reading. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God. He starts to get funny and a little sarcastic here soon. But put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, this is funny, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey. Perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. So it's Elijah's turn. And he called the people in closely. And he said, all right, God's going to demonstrate who the one true God is. And he says, take four, four jars of water and pour it on the altar and the wood and the bull. Soak them through. And so they get it and they pour it on the altar. He says, do it a second time. And they do it again, four jars of water onto the bull and the wood and the altar. There had been a trench cut uh, all the way around and it started to fill the trench. Do it a third time. They take the four jars of water and pour it. It's totally soaked through. The water's in the trench. And Elijah looked to heaven. And this is what he said, verse 36. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. That's just a way to say the God who is faithful. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Now listen to this. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed, important word, consumed, look at what it consumed, the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord 
He is God. This wasn't just like your, your run-of-the-mill fire. This was fire from heaven that consumed it all. It said it consumed the rocks. God alone can send fire that consumes rocks. Nothing was left. Awesome miracle. The people saw the glory of God and they said, The Lord, He is God. They turned from their pagan worship at that moment and said, The Lord, He is God. This is, this is a cool miracle on the order of Rocky and Hoosiers and remember the Titans all in one. I mean, that kind of cool victory Elijah gets to partake in and to participate in something like that. And Elijah was depressed. He's on the heels of one of the coolest miracles in the Old Testament. And he goes away depressed. Can you imagine being a part of something like that? Seeing God work in great power like that? What reason does he have to be depressed? I mean... Why should he be depressed? He was just participating in something that, that few people get to see. How in the world could such a spiritually powerful dude who witnessed God do incredible things like that be depressed? Three things he believed that were lies that we all believe sometimes when we're getting into this place of depression. This is how to get depressed in three easy steps with Elijah as our model. Number one, we believe the lie that I am alone. I'm alone. I'm all by myself in this. Start at 1 Kings 19, 1-3 there. This is right after God had kicked the prophets of Baal in the tail with that cool miracle. Verse 1, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me, and more also if I do not make your life as one of them by this time tomorrow. That's what the messenger said to Elijah. So Hoosiers rock, you remember the Titans, awesome victory, and this is Elijah's response. Keep reading verse 3. He was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Mount Carmel, where this miracle took place in Jezreel in the north, is as far away from Beersheba in the south. Beersheba is the place to go if you want to get as far away as possible from the north. 120 miles probably took five days if he was running for part of the time. So Elijah's freaking out. He begins to isolate himself. I am all alone in this. And so he, he runs away in fear. We got a hint of this, by the way. In 1822, if you look at that later, in 1822, when Elijah said in front of the people at the very beginning there, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. Obadiah, probably sitting there in the, in the crowd there going, I just told you there are a hundred others. I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. I'm all alone. Remember our definition of depression, extended, exaggerated feelings of hopelessness that are not consistent with reality? <laughs> yeah, Elijah, nobody else has experienced anything like you have. 
which is kind of a parallel to us, when we get in that place of depression, of, of darkness, we act like not one other person of the estimated 100 billion people who have existed on the planet throughout all of history has ever experienced what you experience. It's easy to get in a self place. I am all alone. It's understandable why we get there and how we get there. But that's one of the lies that we believe. One of the lies that we believe is we are all alone in this. We'll undo that lie a little bit later. Second lie that we believe is that God has not provided what I need. God has not provided what I need. 1 Kings 19, 13 to 8. Start there again at verse 3. So Jezebel's after him. He leaves, goes to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And it says at the end of verse 3 there, he left his servant there. So he's already in Beersheba, and he leaves his servant there. Then it says this, verse 4, but he himself... Elijah went a day's journey into the wilderness, which is a little weird, as if 120 miles away weren't far enough. It says he came and sat down under a broom tree. Uh, Long story short, Elijah has come to the wilderness to die. He's just, he's come to die. He perceived uh, Jezebel coming after him right on the heels of this great miracle as God saying, I'm done with you, Elijah. You're done. And so he, he, he goes off to the wilderness to die. He does not think that God's provision is going to continue. He had just done one of the most amazing miracles in all of Scripture. And somebody threatens you through life, it's not like it hasn't happened before for him. God's provision was not on his radar screen at the time. And so he went a day's journey into the wilderness, verse 4, and came and sat under a broom tree, which, by the way, by itself is grace in the middle of the wilderness. He finds some shade, but he's so sour he doesn't notice the grace of God. So he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough, I've had it, just let me die now. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. (laughs) So he laid down, verse 5, and slept under a broom tree. Now listen, when you're coming off a big miracle like that, a personal victory, something that took a lot of energy and and time and effort, rest is is a good provision. Rest is a helpful thing that God provides. So he provides it. Behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. He also gave him food. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and laid down again, provision of God and food and rest. And the angel of the Lord, verse 7, came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. You can keep reading about Elijah. He, he, He doesn't get this even to the end. He doesn't get God's provision for him even to the end. He believed the lie that, that God was not going to look out for him, that, that what God had provided for him wouldn't be enough. And so he took matters into his own hands and left and said, go ahead and kill me now, Lord. Third lie we believe in basic terms is everything is broken and doomed. 
Everything is broken and doomed. This is about focusing on the negative. This is the, uh, the doomsday, all day, every day kind of perspective that sees very little good in the circumstances. This is real easy to get to, people. This is real easy to get to. But this is a lie we believe. Everything is broken and doomed. Look at 1 Kings 19.10. He also says the same thing in 14. This is Elijah here. He says, I've been very jealous for the Lord. He's talking to God. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, there he is again, am left and they seek my life to take it away. I can imagine God looking at Elijah going, what are you even talking about? I have given you provision for countless miracles and needs in your life. And, and, and you get up to this point at the end of your life where you do most, one of the most incredible things to, to prove his glory. You get to participate in something amazing like that and, and God must be sitting there going, didn't I, did I not did I not bring you here? Elijah had believed the lie that everything is broken and doomed. <laughs> I can imagine God just kind of saying, listen, I've got the center of the universe thing taken care of, thank you, and I will, I will make sure that all of this goes, all of this world and history goes toward that end of salvation and judgment and the consummation of what I've started. I've got that covered, Elijah. I'll do that. Okay, just fine. Elijah believed the lies that he was all alone. That God's provision wasn't enough. And that everything was doomed. Did you know that Elijah was depressed like this for probably about two months? Two months. Have you ever been there? You don't have to raise your hand. I'm not asking you to. I can raise my hand. Um, you ever been depressed or in despair for a long time? Maybe you've experienced that kind of prolonged, extended period of feelings that are not consistent with reality that goes for months. I've been uh, depressed, clinically depressed, uh, multiple times. And I'm no great fan of being vulnerable. I kind of don't like it. <laughs> uh, but I've been there multiple times. I've been there a couple times where I just had to say to my wife and to the staff, I, I'm out of here. I'm leaving for days. I just want to be alone with God. I can't talk to anybody. I don't want to be around anybody. I just need to be alone. There was one time I was on the way out of town going to Asheville. Uh, and for about an hour and a half, I pretty much cried on and off that whole time. I got to this cool little cabin and uh, took my bags out plopped them next to the door. Uh, I plopped onto the couch and uh, I, had, I had gotten to this place where I was so frazzled, so burned out, so depressed uh, that I could not control myself. And I just plopped on the couch and cried inconsolably for 30 plus minutes. 
I, I could not stop. I couldn't stop. This isn't, this isn't fake. This isn't pretend. This, this has real effects for people. I used to be Mr. Anti, antidepressant. <laughs> I'm on them now, and I've been to counseling as recently as three months ago. And I don't like to talk about my stuff up front, but I do that so that you know that if there's any place on the planet where people should be able to talk about their struggles, it is a part of the community of faith and the family of God. And if we create a culture where that is not okay, shame on us for self-righteous fakery that pushes out people who need to have some healing. Are we preaching yet? If there's anywhere people should be able to talk about their struggles in life, everything I'm talking about back here and more, it is in the faith, in in the family of God in a place like this. And and we want to create a space for that to be safe and okay. And I'm I'm not saying this morning here in worship we're going to have a, a, hey, I have depression. Um, But we do want to create some space uh, for some prayer and some healing to take place as a part of this service. I'll tell you a little bit about that in just a second. But I want to make sure I cover the truth of the gospel, which is that in those three ways that we believe the lies, Jesus, the person of Jesus, undoes all of those. I am alone. No, no, you're not. You're not alone. The person of Jesus is God incarnate in the flesh, come to be here with you so that he would suffer on your behalf. He has experienced in his flesh and humanity all the temptations that we have and he came to let you know that forever he is present, forever he is with us. Number two, God's provision is not enough. In the person of Jesus, the great exchange of his perfect sinless life for us means that we have all the provision we will ever need because his perfect sinless life works for ours when ours doesn't. We have all the provision we will ever need. Everything is broken and doomed because of Christ's coming. There's a cool passage in John. Because of Christ's coming, he has prepared a place for us. He says, I came the first time. I'm going to come again. I've prepared a place for you. This world is not all that there is. At the end of Revelation, the one on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. Everything is not doomed. (laughs) We're a people of hope because we have Jesus Christ. We're not alone. God's provision is enough. And this is headed somewhere. So even though it's hard now, even though life can be difficult and dark now, uh, even though there are times when your life can feel more like this, like it's just, you've just, the life has been snuffed out of you, we're gathered here to worship a God who gives us light, who gives us hope, 
who gives us a way out. Jesus himself is the fix. Our relationship with him. Which means that we can be people who one last scripture bear one another's burdens. Galatians 6.2 is a scripture we're going to put up here for you. <clears throat> when we bear one another's burdens for these kinds of things, we are the light of Christ for one another in a way that can provide space for healing. And I'm not saying that we're going to cover your clinical depression in one sermon, uh, but I am saying we want to create a space and a place among us, uh, a safe place where we talk about things that are real, things that hurt, things that are hard. We're not, going to, we're not going to play the fake game here. This is real stuff that affects people's lives that is hard. So we're going to give you an invitation to respond to this in just a second. We're going to do this a little differently today. If you are struggling with depression or you know someone who is struggling with depression, we want to invite you to, to come forward in a second while we sing. We're going to sing a song together. We're going to invite you to come forward and uh, just to, to take one of these sticks here and, and from this candle, light one of those candles as a symbol, as a symbol of your prayer for that person or your need for prayer. We're going to have uh, a couple staff members and elders up here. If you need time for prayer right now, um, great. What I want you to do is to come up to do that for uh, yourself as a, as a symbol of prayer for somebody else in just a second. And, and we have invite cards up here um, that we have for you. And, and I, want you, I want you to grab one of those on your way out here. And uh, for the person that you're praying for, heck, if it's for yourself, write this for yourself. <laughs> write a little note of encouragement that says, hey, just wanted to let you know that I prayed for you today. The Lord loves you and so do I. Hang in there. Just, just a little something like that for somebody can be very, very meaningful and helpful. So we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing together. <clears throat>